Good morning, everyone. We are once again talking about those who serve the Lord through music and poetry, as the great litany says. And this morning, I want to set up uh, my remarks uh, through two scenes, uh, which, neither of which I'm making up. They actually happened. Um, scene one, it is May 2004, and my wife Denise and I are in Paris with some, hello, um, some people we happen to know, <laughs> and a group of Wheaton College students. Now, as Wheaton evangelicals in reasonably good standing, we know that we are in the heart of spiritual darkness, the spiritual darkness that is France where the revolution of 1789 wiped out most Christian witness, and in the 20th century, Jean-Paul Sartre eradicated what little remained. <laughs> One Sunday morning, an American couple, Wheaton graduates living just around the corner from the Cathedral of Notre Dame, invite us to attend mass at the Church of Saint-Gervais and Saint-Proté on the right bank in the center of the city. We approach the plaza in front of the church, and as we enter, are struck by the mingled sounds of the church bells and the magnificent Baroque organ. We approach the plaza in front of the church, and as we enter, we are even more struck by the sight of priests and nuns dressed in white, lying prostrate facing the altar. During the next hour, we are absolutely overwhelmed by a profound sense of worship that fills the sanctuary. Later that same day, we walk towards Notre Dame itself, and we hear a familiar American praise chorus being sung in French by young street evangelists from the cathedral. As Wheaton evangelicals in reasonably good standing, we have been totally unprepared for what we have just experienced. Scene two, sometime around 1995, 96 or so, and I'm teaching an introductory music history course to freshman music majors in the lower level of Pierce Chapel. We are just beginning to talk about the music of the 20th century, and I'm preparing the students to encounter and try to comprehend musical idioms that will be very new and sometimes very strange for many of them. I argue, as I argue with you, that when Paul declares to the Philippians that on the last day, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Every tongue includes every possible musical idiom, whether Western or Eastern, ancient or modern, classical or popular. I begin to talk about a 20th century French composer who showed remarkable faithfulness in placing his devotion to Jesus at the center of his work and proclaiming that devotion in the midst of the great concert halls of the world. As I continue, a hand goes up in the front of the room. The student says, uh, Dr. Horn, uh, you've been talking about Messiaen as a Christian composer. I thought you said he was Catholic. <laughs> I pause for a moment, trying to figure out what would be the right thing to say. And what comes, of, what comes out of my mouth is this. Well, first of all, I'm not the one who is writing the book of life. <clears throat> uh, this is Olivier Messiaen, and it was in the context 
of a remarkable renewal of Christian intellectual and devotional life amongst French-speaking Catholics in the early 20th century that Messiaen came to faith and prominence. He was born at Avignon in December of 1908. His parents were both literary. His father, Pierre, was a highly regarded uh, translator into French of Shakespeare and Milton. His mother, Cécile Sauvage, was a respected poet who wrote a whole series of poems about her unborn son, imagining that somehow he would become a great creative artist. Messiaen died of cancer, aged 83, at the end of April 1992. I never met him, but I was privileged to once observe him from a distance uh, across uh, Avery Fisher Hall at a New York Philharmonic concert honoring his 70th birthday. He sat during the entire concert very quietly looking down at scores of his own music as the music played. Uh, Messiaen's is a remarkable voice amongst 20th century composers. His music probes spiritual depths that are arguably unmatched by any of his contemporaries. There are similarities between Messiaen and Johann Sebastian Bach, whose life and work we considered a few weeks ago. Both were outstanding organists. Messiaen spent over 60 years as titular organist at the Church of the Holy Trinity near the Gare Saint-Lazare in the heart of Paris. It's a beautiful church, and this is a shot uh, that I took in 2013 of the organ loft itself. And given the colorful nature of much of Messiaen's music, I just love the fact that this is what he sat under as he played for so many years. Um, on any given Sunday, when Messiaen was in the organ loft, you might have heard something like this, a piece called Transport of Joy of a Soul Face to Face with the Glory of Christ, which is his own. Ah. sampling. Now, uh, just a word about this photograph. Uh, the woman uh, playing at the organ in this photo is a woman named Carolyn uh, Schuster Fournier, who is actually a Wheaton graduate who moved to Paris and uh, became uh, an assistant organist at La Trinité uh, and knew Messiaen uh, for a number of years. And uh, when I was there in uh, May 2013, uh, I arranged with her to meet me and take me on a private tour of the organ loft. And one goes up this beautiful, very old, very tight uh, stone spiral staircase to go up to the loft itself. And it was just moving to me to imagine that Messiaen had climbed that staircase so many times. And then even more moving to hear, hear Carolyn begin to play Messiaen's music on the very organ where he imagined all of this for the first time. Um, 
the position that Messiaen had at La Trinité was free from the heavy compositional and pedagogical responsibilities that Bach had faced. And it allowed Messiaen relatively wide latitude in his musical activities. Both Messiaen and Bach were sincerely devout. Bach was steeped in the orthodox Lutheranism of the early 18th century and was at least conversant with the pietism that sought to turn the church from mere orthodoxy towards a faith that was deeply and personally experienced. The Catholic renewal that nurtured Messiaen's faith re-emphasized the experiential side of faith in a way that was somewhat akin to Lutheran pietism. Messiaen interacted with this movement and also drew heavily upon Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Akempis, and St. Francis of Assisi. Yes, uh, we can't uh, leave that somehow. All right, there, okay. Now, enlisted in the French army at the beginning of World War II, the quiet philosophical bookish Messiaen was captured by German forces in the spring of 1940. He was transported to Stalag 8A, a prisoner of war camp near Görlitz, Germany, on what is now the Polish border. Conditions were harsh, especially in winter, but Messiaen had the remarkable fortune to befriend a music-loving German officer who allowed him to keep a small library of favorite musical scores and gave him access <coughs> to pencils and music manuscript paper. Having discovered a violinist, cellist, and clarinetist among his fellow prisoners, Messiaen began to write a quartet to play with them, in part using musical material already conceived for other purposes. Strikingly, the resulting work was not directly concerned with war, suffering, or protest. Instead, Messiaen drew inspiration from the 10th chapter of the Book of Revelation. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow upon his head, and his face was as the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire, and swore by him that lives forevermore, which created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things that therein are, that time should be no more. Now, uh, the biblical text here can be understood to mean either time is up, there shall be no more delay, some modern translations give, uh, or that time itself is at an end. Messiaen played with both meanings in his quartet for the end of time. Its eight movements dominated by images of absolute transcendence. The quartet begins with a movement called Crystal Liturgies. It's an evocation of the dawn chorus, that moment before the break of day when birds begin to sing together. Messiaen was obsessed with birds and called himself a professional ornithologist. Birds for him were the perfect musicians, improvising together naturally, each with a distinctive voice and song, and oblivious to the ravages of human conflict. His obsession grew with time, and by the late 1950s, he had written a collection of piano pieces called The Bird Catalog, in which he incorporated painstakingly notated songs of many French birds. He would actually go into the fields, take music paper, and jot down what he heard, and then take it back to the music studio. Uh, I actually heard a live performance of the Catalogue d'Oiseau just uh, last summer. Uh, it's 13 pieces, it lasts three and a half hours. This is an amazing obsession. Um, the opening of the quartet 
In the opening of the quartet, the clarinet and violin give voice to birdsong, while the cello and piano sound low, seemingly irregular chords that counter our usual expectations about steady rhythm and tempo, thus distorting our sense of time. Here's a little bit of that opening. characterized by extreme contrast. Uh, three of the eight movements are concerned with the angel who announces the end of time and with the seven trumpets sounded at his command. As C.S. Lewis would have said, Messiaen's angels are not gentle pre-Raphaelite creatures, but are full of force and strength. Particularly striking is the dance of fury for the seven trumpets. All four instruments are asked to play complex, jagged rhythmic figures in absolute unison Deriving from Messiaen's interest in classical Indian music, the rhythms are built of uneven groupings of three, five, seven, and so on. And uh, some of the rhythms read the same forwards and backwards, they're palindromes. Again, as in crystal liturgies, confounding our normal expectations of how musical time proceeds. The result is music that is simultaneously violent and joyful. The dance of fury uh, uh, let me just get uh, a little bit of the Dance of Fury here so you can hear it.
gives you at least some idea. Um, the Dance of Fury leads into the seeming climax of the quartet, a movement called Cluster of Rainbows for the Angel Who Announces the End of Time. Messiaen's depiction of the movement invokes rainbows, swords of flame, blue-orange lava. This is not your old-fashioned dispensational end times chart, but a riot of imagery very much related to surrealism. We tend to think of surrealism as having to do with things that are unreal, but for Messiaen, it was about super-reality or supernatural reality, something more real than anything we can imagine. In his own words, the arts, especially music, but also literature and painting, allow us to penetrate domains that are not unreal, but beyond reality. For the surrealists, it was a hallucinatory domain. For Christians, it is the domain of faith. Music is capable of expressing this dreamlike, fairytale aspect of the this surreal aspect of the truths of faith. Um, if the music of the quartet is beautiful, it is not pretty in a conventional 19th century sense, but shines with what Charles Williams would have called a terrible goodness. Messiaen, more than anything else, wanted to be dazzled by the glory and beauty of God and wanted to induce that dazzlement in his listeners. He was not like people who Charles Williams once described as those who, quote, liked their religion taken mild, a pious hope, a devout ejaculation, a general sympathetic sense of a kindly universe, but nothing upsetting or bewildering, no agony, no darkness, no uncreated light. Agony, that darkness, that brilliance, that Quartet ends with uh, a very stunning moment. There are two string solos in the quartet, both in praise of Jesus. The first is for cello and piano and praises the eternity of Jesus. That is his godhood, the one who was from the beginning with God and was God. The second hymn of praise ends the quartet. The violin here sings in praise of Jesus' immortality, his humanity, as the piano accompanies with throbbing chords. They are heartbeats, in fact. Are they his? Are they ours? Yes. Uh, in the seven or so times that I've performed this quartet live, it has been almost impossible to fight tears as the violin makes its final ascent. Uh, let me just see if I can get you there.
If you ever see an announcement that this piece is being performed somewhere, by all means go. <clears throat> um, Messiaen was freed from Stalag 8A not long after the first performance of the quartet and returned to Paris. He proceeded to write two large cycles for piano, the Vision de l'Amen, Visions of the Amen for two pianos, and <coughs> 20 Contemplations of the Infant Jesus, a two and a half hour cycle of 20 pieces for solo piano. Both works were prefaced by lengthy theological commentaries by the composer himself, and both were written for his phenomenally gifted student, Ivan Lochio, who became his muse and frequent helper during the long period that his wife, Claire Delbeau, suffered from serious mental illness. Uh, this is a shot of uh, Messiaen and Lochio. Uh, when I heard that 70th birthday concert at, uh, at the New York Philharmonic for Messiaen, uh, Lorio actually played uh, one of the big bird pieces for piano and orchestra, and it was just marvelous to be able to hear her. Uh, Messiaen wrote very few large-scale works after meeting uh, Lorio that did not include a prominent solo piano part, tailored to her extraordinary musical and technical gifts. Claire Delbeau died in 1959. Two years later, Messiaen married Lorio. Uh, 1945 saw the premiere of a piece called Three Small Liturgies of the Divine Presence, a work for women's chorus, solo piano, an early electronic instrument called Onde Martineau, which owes its continued existence mostly to the fact that Messiaen wrote for it so many times. Uh, in addition to that, percussion and strings. As with the quartet and the two piano cycles, the inspiration for the liturgies is explicitly devotional, with texts written by Messiaen himself drawn from the Gospels, from Aquinas, and from Thomas Akempis. These are liturgies, acts of worship, placed squarely in the middle of the public square we call the concert hall. It would be impossible to imagine gathering piano, percussion, on Martino, strings, and women's chorus, and doing the liturgies in an actual service of worship. This is music meant for the concert hall. Uh, we can learn something of Messiaen's theological thinking by looking at the texts. The first begins, my Jesus, my silence, remain in me. My Jesus, my kingdom of silence, speak in me. My Jesus, night of rainbow and silence, pray in me. Son of blood of birds, my rainbow of love, wilderness of love, sing, cast love's halo, my love, my God. This is again the language of a supernatural surrealism reaching beyond conventional God talk for images that stretch the uh, spiritual imagination. Listen to a bit of the second liturgy called Sequence of the Word, Divine Canticle. The text here, the beloved has gone, it is for us. The beloved has ascended, it is for us. The beloved has prayed, it is for us. He has spoken, he has sung, the word was in God. He has spoken, he has sung, and the word was God. Praise of the Father, substance of the Father, imprint and emanate, emanate always. 
in love, word of love, through the word the Father said, it is I. You will hear uh, uh, persistently through this little clip the words pour nous, for us. Chicago Symphony did it a few years ago. Um, now, um, oh, yes, um, there's something I skipped here. Um, um, yeah, um, the theological writings um, at the heart of the big piano cycles of the early 1940s and the exuberant musical language of these liturgies led to a battle in the French musical press that became known as Le Cas Messiaen, the case of Messiaen. Uh, some critics denounced Messiaen's dependence on lengthy verbal explanations of his musical and devotional intent, and others dismissed him, even doubting the sincerity of his work and his faith. A large part of the furor was really rooted in embarrassment on the part of many by Messiaen's Christian devotion and by the forthright way in which he expressed it. Not so many years ago, uh, during a time when I was preparing a performance of the quartet for the end of time, uh, my cellist friend, who was then in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, approached uh, the conductor and composer Pierre Boulez, who had been a pupil of Messiaen in the late 40s. And um, Steve asked uh, Boulez about Messiaen, and even though Messiaen had frequently conducted, I mean, Boulez had frequently conducted Messiaen's work and uh, was fond of him as a father figure of sorts, uh, Boulez apparently just smirked and said, ah, he was so naive. Um, and this was the attitude of many of the French uh, 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 intellectual uh, uh, crowd uh, to him. Now, you know, this affair seems like much ado about nothing after 75 years, but it does raise some interesting questions. Um, you know, just how does one communicate faith or anything else of value through a nonverbal medium like music or visual art? And uh, I'll mention something that I've thought about from time to time. Uh, during the many years when the Billy Graham Center used to host a sacred arts exhibition, I would often note that uh, there were some uh, artist writings about their work that were actually larger than the piece of work itself. <laughs> and it made me wonder, uh, you know, 
where the balance is. Uh, does one choose to write an essay or does one choose to make a work of art? And uh, you know, how, to, how, how do we deal with that? Uh, just to uh, break for a moment and throw out uh, things to the floor, I'm just wondering if anybody, Joel, for example, has any thoughts about this? <laughs> yeah, Brad. Did, did his work um, influence John Tavner at all? Um, I mean, it was hard for any composer of faith after Messiaen to, to not be influenced. I don't know how direct uh, Tavener's uh, uh, reliance on Messiaen was. Of course, Tavener uh, moved towards uh, Constantinople instead of Rome. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know a solid answer to your question. But uh, yeah, Monica. And, and, and even uh, the French uh, intellectual establishment, too. Uh, but yeah, any other thoughts? Yeah, John. I think, I think you, using your own words, uh, he's bringing something uh, arguably from another culture. He's bringing something from another time. And he is certainly bringing something unique. And uh, you know, there is something about reading his texts and thinking about them and, and this very colorful uh, visual way in which he imagines the faith that I find, frankly, very moving where sometimes I find other people doing similar things to be tendentious or redundant or something. I'm not quite sure. I want to move on right now. We, we, we could maybe talk some more um, if, if there's time at the end. But um, you know, here's Messiaen. He, he becomes a very important composer. He's teaching at the Paris Conservatoire. Uh, he becomes more and more well-known uh, in the US and abroad. Uh, and you know, if you were a composer of faith and wanted to write a work that would be a total summation of your life's work, what sort of piece would you write? You might answer, well, something like the St. Matthew Passion. But if you are Olivia Messiaen, the answer is you would write an opera. Uh, first presented in Paris just before his 75th birthday in 1983, Messiaen's St. Francis of Assisi is one of the most unusual operas ever written. Uh, its hero is an Italian friar 
who rejects all the wealth and vainglory of the world. There's no love story. St. Clair doesn't even appear. Uh, the only violence occurs when Francis receives the stigmata. The inevitable death at the opera's end is not a tragedy, but a spiritual victory. Apart from sketching the outlines of Francis's life, there is no plot. Instead, the entire four and a half hour work is built around Francis's Canticle of the Sun. Uh, Messiaen was asked if the excessive richness of his musical language and perhaps the excessive richness uh, required to uh, make an opera on a major stage uh, contradicted Francis's spirit of poverty. He replied in the spirit of the canticle that though Francis was completely poor, he retained the wonder of a child, which is something Messiaen said he wanted for everyone. And Francis was in awe of everything around him and was rich in sun, stars, flowers, birds, sea, trees, and all that surrounded him, which is great wealth indeed. That was Messiaen's take on this. Uh, the unique subject matter allowed Messiaen to revisit many recurring ideas in his work. Uh, the famous episode in which Francis preaches to the birds allowed Messiaen to create an apotheosis of bird song. Here uh, from that scene is what is called in the score the Little Bird Concert. It lasts only about 50 seconds. in some of our national parks. Uh, and uh, the uh, wind players uh, in the score are instructed to play out of rhythm with each other. So you get something that is very much like what one would hear out in the wilds among those natural musicians themselves. Um, Messiaen also gives an angelic vision to Francis of what music is. An angel appears and tells him in words drawn from Aquinas, God dazzles us by excess of truth Music carries us to God in default of truth. You speak to God in music, and he will answer you in music. Know the joy of the blessedness by gentleness of color and melody, and may the secrets of glory be open to you. Listen to this music that suspends life from the ladders of heaven. Listen to the music of the unseen. The angel then plays his viol, uh, while somebody in the orchestra actually plays the Ond Martino.
hard to hear in this reproduction, but that high sound, the own Martineau, is the angel playing. Um, later in the opera, as uh, Francis is dying, <coughs> he speaks, again from Aquinas, words that could almost be Messiaen's life prayer, offered for all who are willing to hear. <coughs> he calls out, Lord, Lord, music and poetry have led me to you. <coughs> Deliver me, enrapture me, dazzle me forever by the excess of your truth. And as he dies, the chorus closes the opera with the words, power, glory, and joy. Um, it has often been said, and rightly so, that Messiaen's uh, theology is a theology of glory. Um, <coughs> it's not particularly a theology of suffering, but a theology that transcends it. His music is full of teleological visions of the beyond. Among the authors who influenced his thinking was a 19th century French philosopher and theologian named Ernest Elo, spelled hello. In his book, Words of God, Elo offers an extended meditation on the word amen, <coughs> which contains this passage. That power of the man who has the right to say yes to God testifies both to our dependence and our greatness. What can we do without him who is? Jesus Christ has responded and he has said, you can do nothing. But with his help, we can say amen to the word of God that speaks to us forever. We can say yes, yes, we can say amen to the word that speaks, let there be light. We can say amen to him who says, I am that I am. Amen binds man to the truth. It is the cry of triumph, the hymn of glory. What else can this hymn of glory be than the affirmation of the radiant being? Man must be transformed in a shout of triumph, must become the living amen rising from the earth towards heaven. For what purpose are our souls and bodies if our voices do not cry amen? What are our words, our thoughts, our gestures, and our contemplations if they are not triumphal amens? In response to this, Messiaen wrote a 50-minute work, short by his standards, for two pianos called Visions of the Amen, which ends in an amen of the consummation of all things. It's as good a place to end this morning and suggests that the end will, in fact, only be a beginning. Uh, here's just a little bit of that. <laughs> I think in Warsaw somewhere, and 
she's working on the quartet, and there's a knock at the door. Somebody comes from upstairs or downstairs and said, that music, that music, I heard it in, in prisoner of war camp, and I've never forgotten. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how uh, the German authorities responded, although it seems that at that point in time, early in the war, they were a little bit more uh, permissive than later, given that this one uh, soldier was able to um, <coughs> was able to allow Messiaen to keep his scores of Pelias and Belizon and Bach and so on and so forth. But um, I don't know what the official reaction was. I'm sure they'd be embarrassed. But anyway, yes, Michael. We don't open ourselves enough or widely enough. Yeah. I mean, I think his, it's his answer in the POW camp. I think uh, I, there are many complexities to go into in, in the music of his 40s, or the, of the 1940s and 50s, but that long period when his wife, Claire Delbeau, was in, incapacitated in a mental institution, and Messiaen obviously had fallen in love with Yvon Loriot, and from all accounts, uh, never did anything to violate the sanctity of his marriage bond. Uh, that was, must have been incredible suffering. And yet, out of it came his great Turangalila symphony, uh, which is a symphony based partly on, uh, on holy love and partly on love as in the myth of Tristan and Isolde. Uh, the great bird pieces of the 50s, all of that come out of the period when Claire was incapacitated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Messiaen obviously has a very academic take to his music where he has such lengthy commentaries. And how would you suggest someone, especially someone who's less fluent in musical idioms, how would you suggest they start trying to... Just listen. Um, and and, and I, I would start, I think, with the earlier pieces. Uh, the quartet of, uh, for the end of time is compelling as a piece of music. It's also compelling as a story. If you can find this book uh, for the end of time on, on the uh, genesis of the piece, it would be fascinating to you. Um, and listen to some of the other early things I, I'm particularly fond of because I've played at the uh, Vision de la Men for two pianos and uh, even the, 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 the liturgies that I played this morning. I think, I think his, his early music is a place to start. You know, the, his music of the 1930s, 1940s. Yes.
take on the piece. I, yeah. I've never thought of it quite that way. I've tended to think of it as an ascension, as, as something that is continuing on, and the, the heartbeat is continuing yeah. to the very end, only you just can't hear it. Well, yeah. It's fascinating, I, I'm not sure that I mentioned, but his very last completed work was an 11 part symphony for the New York Philharmonic called uh, Eclair sur l'au-delà, uh, Illuminations of the Beyond. And the very last piece, which is a little bit like this last piece in the quartet, is called Jesus, the Light of Paradise. It's the last thing he had to say to the New York Philharmonic. And, and that was the end. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I see Bruce uh, hovering by the, the, the bells. So.